0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to t for c Hope your fall has been going well and that you've made it out to a pumpkin patch or maybe an apple orchard. And if you live in the part of the world where the leaves change colors, maybe even enjoyed some leaf peeping. Speaking of peeping, and before I introduce my next guest, if you haven't already signed up for the Java Junkies Journal, where you can get a sneak peek at the guests we'll be featuring that week on T4C, please check out the Time for Coffee website. That's time4coffee.org the number four, coffee.org, and sign up right now. You can also check out other episodes of t for c on the homepage, where they're all organized by profession, or on the podcast page, where you can just scroll through the dozens and dozens of episodes we've dropped since August. And while you're there, grab a mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my highly esteemed guest is Judge Julie Breslow who was appointed as magistrate judge for the Superior Court of the District of Columbia in 2002, and she's been assigned to a child welfare calendar during her entire time on the bench. That's 16 years. Magistrate Judge Breslow's caseload consists of neglect cases, including adoptions, guardianships, juvenile delinquency matters, and domestic relations cases, Magistrate Judge Breslow also presides over all D.C. neglect matters involving unaccompanied refugee minors in foster care and has a particular interest in the intersection of family law and immigration law. So hear ye, hear ye, the time for coffee court is now in session. And Magistrate Judge Julie Breslow will be presiding over this entire episode <laughs> of Deeper Sea. Judge Breslow, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am caffeinated and ready to go. Thank you. Did I did I do this in the right place? Yes. I did? You did. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I guess my all those Law and Order episodes have actually sunk in. In all seriousness, Mm -hmm. it is great to have you here. Thank you. I want personally, and I know Java junkies as well, to better understand, first of all, what the Superior Court of the District of Columbia is. What is the significance of that court as it relates to other courts in the District of Columbia?
1: So it's our local court. It's a local trial court. Because we're not a state, we don't have um, many, many different trial courts in different counties or things like you might have in Maryland or Virginia. We're just the district, we're small, and we have one trial court and one appellate court. It's just a two-level system. Some states have three levels. We only have two, trials and appeals. So we handle everything in superior court that arises under local D.C. laws. So local criminal stuff, any kind of family or domestic relations matters, civil cases involving money or property, probate cases, tax cases, domestic violence cases, that kind of stuff. So it's your basic local court. Anything that uh, has to do with federal law goes to federal district court. And that's not us. That's in a different courthouse.
0: So what does it mean? That you are a magistrate judge, not just judge. Julie Breslow.
1: So we have two levels of judges in the District of Columbia, associate judges and magistrate judges. And it has to do with the types of cases that they hear, the power that they have, and how they're appointed. In family court, it doesn't make a tremendous amount of difference because we don't really have too many jury trials in family court except in mental health matters occasionally. But the main distinction in the type of work that the two different Judicial officers do is that associate judges can do jury trials and magistrate judges can't. The appointment process of how you get the job is also different. Associate judges are appointed by the president, believe it or not, the U.S. president. Really? Because in D.C., we don't have a governor to appoint judges like you might in Maryland or Virginia or whatever. So they are appointed by the president or nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. That's for associate judges. Magistrate judges are appointed by the chief of the associate judges.
0: And so you have been in this role now for 16 years. I have. I have. Long time. Long time. And I'm sure you've seen a lot Mm -hmm. over the course of that time. You must really enjoy it. I do. I love it. What do you do? Give us a window into what a typical day is like for you?
1: Well, for me, because I'm assigned in family court, it's a little bit different than it might be for a magistrate judge in the criminal court and the criminal division or in the civil division. So I think I'll answer that with just a general, what does the average magistrate judge do? Not just me in family court, but we handle cases. And often we're the first person that you see the first time you go to court. If it's a criminal case, magistrate judges handle the arraignment the first time a, a defendant is presented in court court. They will also handle the preliminary hearing when decisions are being made about detention and, and other conditions leading up to a trial. In family court, we are the first person who sees the litigants when a child is removed from parents in an abuse or neglect situation, or often in certain in uncontested divorces or child support matters. There's a lot of volume on the magistrate judge's calendars. And then we prepare cases for trial. And then depending on your calendar, I do my own trials. So I will prepare a trial. Lawyers will come to me and uh, present their sides of the case. I make a trial decision. I make decisions about whether or not I think the child has been abused or neglected, whether or not the child should be returned to the parents immediately, or whether the parents have to do some work in order to get their children back to deal with whatever conditions occurred to have the children removed. I will do adoption trials if the child is going to be adopted. In criminal cases or civil cases, magistrate judges do trials for small claims matters, for uh, certain traffic offenses, some other types of, of misdemeanor offenses in criminal court. So there's a lot of different Trials that happen with magistrate judges. Also, a lot of other types of hearings that we handle, but mostly there's a, a high volume on all of our calendars.
0: So, how much of your day are you in chambers? And how much of your day are you actually sitting on the, the bench? bench? So in chambers. Chambers is just like
1: a really <laughs> nice way to say my office, which is very nice, but it always feels a little funny to me to say in chambers. And I still do sometimes say my office. But uh, it depends on the day. Uh, I have a fair amount of writing on, on the calendar that I sit on right now. So I'm writing opinions. So I am not on the bench hearing trials all day, every day. Some days it's from early in the morning till the end of the day, lunch break and nothing else. Other days, it's a hearing for an hour here, a hearing for an hour there with some time in the office in between. Some days I have just back-to-back hearings, many of them all day. So it it really depends. There are some judges who don't have a lot of writing that they need to do. Most of what they need to do can just be done on fairly um, form orders. And they will hear many, many, many cases, one after another, after another. And they may sit on the bench from 9 to 4.45 without anything but a lunch break. So it depends.
0: Are you making the decision to take the kind of cases where you're doing a lot of writing? Is that something that you actually enjoy or is this just the luck of the draw?
1: I actually like the writing. It goes with family court. We are required to have written findings. So I think if I didn't like the writing, I probably wouldn't like the assignment but I, I do. I, th- I find it satisfying. It's also collaborative because I work with my law clerk on what I write. And sometimes the lawyers submit drafts of you know how they want things to be written once they've prevailed. So it is a, a sort of a, a collaborative process, which I enjoy.
0: You and I chatted a couple of weeks ago about your job and something you said really surprised me, which is it isn't such a downer all the time. And I think, you know, maybe we could talk a little bit about the good that you feel that you're doing. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of good that you're doing, and then get into some of the challenges that this type of case work brings with it.
1: So whenever I tell somebody what I do, like if I'm out and someone says, oh, what do you do? Which is a Washington kind (laughs) of question. I tell them and they say, oh, that must be so depressing. And it definitely has depressing moments. There's no question about it. But there's wonderful, wonderful moments. And for me, those make it all worthwhile. So, for example, I see a lot of sad family situations where there's a lot of family dysfunction. But I also spend a lot of time focusing the people in my case on what are the problems, in what way can we find city services, like social services, to assist the family in solving this problem, and how quickly can we solve it? And so, for example, if you've got a child who's removed from parents because of something the parents are doing wrong, whether it's a mental health problem or substance abuse problem, and you can get the parents to work with the social worker to combat that problem, and the parent's make progress and I can say we can safely reunify this child with the parents, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, right? So what what started out as a depressing, sad case may end with a child going home to a parent and a parent who is hopefully a lot healthier than they were before. So that's really great. And those cases stay with you. There are some cases where parents are not able to get their kids back. They're not able to do what's necessary there. And in many of those cases, we do guardianships with family members. And so you might get a grandmother or an aunt or uncle or cousin or godparent who becomes the child's legal guardian. And that can be really great also. And we also do adoptions. And that's really fun. I mean, you're making a new family. So yes, there is sadness that this child has lost a family, but they've also gained a family. So those are some really sort of easy examples of where it's fun and where it makes me happy. I also really love talking to the kids in my cases. And a lot of I, I enjoy talking to the parents in my cases as well when we're in court and they're there with their lawyers. And I think working, trying to have sort of a, a view of how can we make sure that your family is in better shape when you leave the last time than when you came in. It's just really satisfying. And it, it taps into all my problem-solving skills. And I like that.
0: You've said now, this is the first time here in this part of our interview, that you really love talking to the kids. You said the same thing in the espresso shots mm-hmm. that we did. What is it about interacting with children and teenagers that is so satisfying and really kind of fills you up as a professional?
1: They're funny sometimes. They're honest. There's not a lot of sugarcoating in what they say. And I like it. And I enjoy it. I I think there are some kids that are impossible that I have a really hard time with. It's not like every kid has like, I have a great relationship with every kid in my cases. But there are some that... I can really connect with. And that there are some that have kept in touch with me after they've their cases have closed when really? they've turned 21. And I will say that I, I just had one of the most amazing experiences of my, I think, adult life, not just my judicial life, but a a child who was a refugee from another country who came into foster care in the district and whose case I supervised for a couple of years until he turned 21 and his case closed because he was an adult. He got in touch with me a couple uh, couple of months ago to tell me he was on the verge of becoming a citizen and invited me to his citizenship ceremony. And that, and I went and it was, I'd never been to one. It was really, I cried. It was very moving because it's an amazing thing to think about. And also because it meant a tremendous amount to him. And it meant a lot to me that he wanted me to be there. Oh so
0: it my was gosh. Nice. It was that really is nice. beautiful. Yeah, it was really nice. It was really nice. So let's talk a bit about the underbelly part of all of this could you share with us a case or two that you've had to oversee that stuck with you
1: a lot of them stick with me i mean i can't i can't give you case details obviously but i can tell you the types of cases that stick with me cases where i'm afraid that things are a little bit better when the case closes but not better enough that the family won't end up back in court. Those are the ones that keep me up at night. Cases where I'm not sure I've actually heard the real truth and I've gotten the most information I can from listening to the lawyers and the trial and everything, but cases where the facts maybe just don't fit together as well as you might like them to. And you have to make a decision. I have to make a decision based on what's in front of me and I'm worried that I'm missing some information, those cases really concern me. And I I think many judges worry about that, that we are stuck with the information that is presented to us by lawyers in trials and, and through other proceedings. We can't go beyond that.
0: And that can be difficult. What was it about family law that initially attracted you?
1: I was in law school and took uh the same in my second year. Took family law, <laughs> women and the law and children and the law, mostly because I had not really enjoyed my first year of law school at all. It just, not that many people do, but I think I particularly disliked it. I really didn't like the dryness of some of the subjects we had to cover. And I decided if I was going to do this law school thing, I was going to take classes that interested me. So children of the law, women in the law, family law. And when I took those classes, it was like I suddenly realized, wow, all those skills that I can learn here, I can actually use them on something that I really love. I don't have to be doing something dry and I can do something that involves people and something that makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm helping someone, all of things. Those
0: are are important things to me. So I like family law. So let's flash back to actually when you were an undergrad at Union College in Schenectady, New York, you actually did an unusual thing with your undergrad and your graduate school. Why don't you tell Java Junkies what, what the program was?
1: I did. Union Union was a wonderful place for me. It's a small liberal arts college in upstate New York, and I loved it. It was great. They had a program called the Six-Year Law Program with Albany Law School, which they're affiliated with. They also had a six-year medical school program with the Albany Medical School. And it allowed you to do three years of college and then go immediately to law school. And I didn't get my BA until I finished my first year in law school. And as a 17-year-old high school senior Senior accepted into Union College. That sounded like a great idea. It sounded like, wow, I'll just go right to law school. I won't have to worry about where I'm going to law school. And it all sounded great. My dad thought it was great because it was going to save all this tuition. And it seemed like an awesome idea. In the end, It worked out fine in the end, but going through it, I I regretted it because I had to leave college a year early and I really liked college. I regret not having that final year of liberal arts and just the ability to take so many different classes and have all those different experiences. And it also put me in law school a year younger, if not more than a year younger than everybody else. That was harder than I expected. I I started law school at 20, so I was not of legal age. And it was a small law school, so there was no campus. So the entire social life was out in the local bars. And, you know, you didn't, I I couldn't even go socialize with friends. So I socially, it wasn't a lot of fun that first semester. And then I turned 21 and I could at least go out. But it was much more than that. It was that I was less mature, than the other students, many of whom had worked for a year or two between college and law school or worked for many years. Older students, more mature students, students who had supported themselves. And I was just sort of naive and young. And it made me feel a little bit out of sorts for most of the time I was in law school. So I wouldn't do that again, if I could do it all over again. Now, on the other hand, once I got my law degree, I took the bar, passed the bar, came right down to D.C. for my first job. And all of a sudden, I was a 23-year-old practicing attorney. And that was awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, so not the greatest decision maybe in the beginning, but it worked out.
0: So when you were in college, you knew that you were going to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. What other extracurriculars did you get involved in, whether it's clubs or sorority or you mentioned drama Mm -hmm. that you did that in retrospect, you realized, wow, that actually helped me as a young lawyer, as a young judge, as an older judge.
1: I was uh, very active in drama as a kid and also in college. And I I think that's great for lawyers. I think it it helps you develop stage presence, the ability to sort of think on your feet, think quickly, feel comfortable talking to a large group, feel comfortable with public speaking. That was my major extracurricular thing in college, and it was pretty all-consuming. And I made really my best, you know, many of my best college friends from that. And I really enjoyed that. In law school, I did moot court and that was sort of tapped into the same feeling. It was not theater, but it was kind of like theater. You're standing up and giving an argument and having to think quickly. And
0: I enjoyed it. What do you think young attorneys should do if they think they want to become a judge one day? Try cases they have to try
1: cases. They have to try a lot of cases. And I think that the only way you can learn... I I can't imagine being a trial judge without having been a trial lawyer. Not every lawyer is cut out for trial work. Many don't like it and that's fine. There's lots of other things to do. But if you enjoy... If you think you want to be a judge, you need to try cases. And I think you need to be able to think on your feet and be able to move very quickly from topic to topic and be comfortable with that. There are many jobs in the legal profession where you really delve into something a hundred percent and you aren't going to be switching to another case or another topic so quickly. And some people don't find that satisfying. I think the number one thing would be trying cases.
0: What type of attorney makes a good judge? Is
1: there a type? Nah, I don't think there's any one type. I mean, I. You know, within the world of judges that I know, and I work with a a large group of judges, you have the sort of the same scope of personalities that you would have in any other group. You have introverts, you have extroverts, you have people who do a ton of preparation, and other people who are better at just going in there and winging it. I mean, there's all different types of people.
0: Do you think there is a particular type of attorney or individual who won't be happy being a judge that you could tell them right now, save yourself, don't go in that direction?
1: Yeah. there. And this is, yes, definitely. The answer is definitely yes. People who are deeply, deeply passionate about one side of an issue often have a difficult time becoming a neutral fact finder, which is what you need to be as a judge. So sometimes you get a lawyer who's in the criminal law world, who's been a prosecutor for a while and then maybe went out and became a defense attorney for a while and then maybe became a judge. They've lived both worlds. That's great. But there are plenty of fantastic judges that have only been defense attorneys or or fantastic judges who have only been prosecutors, but they're able to think their cases through and understand both sides and not always rule in a way that is consistent with what their former job was. There are some people who are so passionate about one side, whether it be prosecution or defense or in family law, whether it's representing parents or representing the government or representing children, some people who really just have a hard time thinking outside of that advocate perspective. And they may not make the best judges. They make really passionate advocates. And there's a huge need for that. So it's not a bad thing. It's just not everybody is comfortable
0: taking the neutral decision maker role. That is, I think, a really important insight to have. Julie, one of the questions I try to ask all my Time for Coffee guests is to share A time, a moment in your professional life when you really struggled, when, you know, whether I don't know if judges have bosses or, you know, (laughs) certainly young attorneys do, when you had a difficult colleague or a challenging supervisor, or maybe it was just the work itself that got to you. And my goodness, Nobody could blame you for thinking, you know, you have some really awful days when you're working in family court and seeing and hearing a lot of the cases you are. Could you share with us that moment, that time and how you came through the other side? So I think
1: the most challenging situation I've faced professionally was a time when I took a job in a law firm and realized I had made a mistake and it wasn't for me. And so to backtrack, I had been at what is now called the Attorney General's Office, but used to be called the Corporation Counsel's Office. And I worked there for about five years uh, doing child support enforcement cases, juvenile delinquency prosecutions, child abuse and neglect prosecutions. And I loved it. Okay. And it was like a great job, but it was, I felt a little burned out. I just felt like I needed to see other aspects of the legal profession. I was still pretty young. And I got this idea that maybe I wanted to practice in a law firm and do family law, domestic relations. And uh, I got a job that by all accounts was probably a great job. It was a nice firm. I went and I worked mostly on domestic relations cases. It was exactly what I wanted to do. And I found it unbelievably unsatisfying. (laughs) <laughs> on on a number of levels. And I knew that almost immediately. I missed being in charge of my own cases and making my own decisions and having that autonomy. I had gone from being a fairly senior trial person in the attorney general's office, corporation counsel's office, to being a junior associate. And that was hard for me. I found that I did not find it satisfying to to be representing clients in cases that mostly were about money. Custody cases did have issues of child welfare involved, but mostly it was all about money. And I didn't, I just didn't find it satisfying. And I, I was hit within weeks with, I don't think I'm going to like this. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I talked to a lot of people and everyone said, well, you have to stick it out. You have to stick it out for a couple of years. You can't just leave, you know. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, I don't know how I'm going to explain this to people, but I think I do need to just leave. I wasn't in a position to just leave without a job. That wasn't going to happen. So I I had to do some real soul searching of, well, I thought this was what I wanted and it's not. So what do I want? And I thought long and hard about what what I missed from the Attorney General's office, Corporation Counsel's office, and what I had thought I would be getting out of a law firm that I wasn't in the end finding satisfying. And I started looking for a job early, like three months into the law firm. And I that was awkward in a lot of different ways. But it turns out, that a stroke of of um something that worked out really well for lucky for me was that right then the child welfare agency in the district of columbia had been involved in it or still is involved actually in a long running class action lawsuit about the conditions that children were living in in foster care. And a federal district court judge had just recently put the agency into receivership, like court supervision. And I thought, you know what, I want to work for that receiver. I just sort of honed in on that office and trying to figure out how I could get my resume in front of them. And I did. And they made me a job offer. They were looking for people who understood the child welfare system in the District of Columbia. So by the time they offered me the job, I had been at the law firm six months and they offered it to me and I jumped. I didn't think I would ever get that kind of opportunity. The firm was surprised and they were not happy. And I did it anyway. And it was, the right, it was the right choice for me. And the nice thing is that I was able to maintain good relationships with some of the people from the law firm. The firm actually is no longer in existence. It disbanded not that much longer after I left. People who adv- had advised me against doing this, they always said the same thing. They said, how will you explain this on your resume? And I had to think about that because I have had to explain it in job interviews and other things. And what I always say is I was not happy. It had nothing to do with the people that I was working with or anything like that. It just, it it was a mistake. I recognized that I made a mistake. It's okay to make mistakes. And I wanted to do something I felt more passionate about. I did not shirk any of my obligations. You were honest. I was honest and it was it was the right thing for me. And so I have over the years have had Former law clerks and other young lawyers who've, you know, been in a job that they're unhappy with. And what I've always been able to tell them is like, you probably can't get away with this too many times in your career, but I think everybody's entitled to change their mind and to just say, this wasn't the right choice for me, and I'm gonna get out of this in the best way I possibly can. It is a learning experience to realize we're not going to love every job. I know that everyone knows that, but
0: disliking a job is actually helpful too, because it makes you realize what you don't want. I think that's fantastic. And it reminds me very much of what you said in the espresso shots regarding the best career advice you'd ever gotten, which was that you're allowed to change your mind.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's hard as a judge. People want your ruling to be firm. And for the most part, you know, I'd say 95, 99% of the time, you know, I make my ruling and that's it. But it is okay if you realize you've made a mistake. It is okay to acknowledge your
0: mistake and to to do what you need to do to correct it. You know what? We are human. Mm -hmm. And I just think to be so strict with yourself to say, I made a mistake, let's say, regarding the job that you're in and by gosh, I've got to be miserable for the next two years. What sense does that make? I don't think you're doing anybody any good under those circumstances. So Julie, final time for coffee question. If you could go back to Union College and do it all over mm-hmm. again, based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would Would you give yourself?
1: Oh my God, I would definitely tell myself do not do this three year thing. Don't rush. What are you in such a rush for? The idea that I made that decision at like 17 just blows me away now. So I would say don't rush. Take as many different classes as you want. I I don't think liberal arts is for everybody. Some people are a lot more focused. But for me, I thought a liberal arts environment was just like, it was so much fun. Like I could just take this and that all these different things and love this, hate this, whatever, but just so nice to be able to just learn so much about so many different things. So I would say, enjoy it. Don't, Rush.
0: Wonderful. Julie Judge Breslow, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee with me and the Time for Coffee community today. I so enjoyed getting to better understand the incredibly important work that you're doing trying to help families work through some of the more difficult times in their lives. It was great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was fun.